So welcome to another season of Is This For Real? Uh, I just want to start off by touching on some of the things that we are going to do differently on season two than we did on season one. Um, so when we started season one of the podcast, um, we chose the name Is This For Real? because it was coming at a moment where uh, Black Lives Matter and a lot of the issues around um, racism were coming into light with George Floyd being murdered. But what that also meant was um, a lot of mainstream attention, which was uh, very, very strange when it came to um, addressing some of the problems around, um, yeah, like I said, Black Lives Matter and racism. So a couple of months before George Floyd was murdered, um, people were ignoring black issues in Edmonton. Um, Bashir was campaigning to get justice for Emil, a student who was racially profiled in a Catholic school for wearing a do-rag. Um, there was still a lot of ambiguity around carding a racist practice by policing in Alberta and Edmonton. Um, and it didn't seem like people really cared about these issues. I felt like there was, yeah, relative silence. It's hard to get people to show up to protests. Um, and then when George Floyd was killed, Thousands of people showed up in the streets to protest. Um, there was incredible performance from corporations talking about how they supported black lives and how this is a central part of their company. Um, there were other, um, you know, news media who came out and basically, you know, either, you know, questioned the existence of systemic racism or, you know, again, yeah, tried to cover up their own guilt and made all these statements. So. It felt like a very surreal moment, and we kind of used that to name the show. Um, but since then, I feel like um, things have changed and kind of settled. Um, but this kind of surreal reality has, you know, been difficult to contend with. And I think a lot of people in, like, positions of power, um, yeah, haven't really contended with this reality that we're facing. Um, so I think the show now is really going to try to uh, take take an authentic perspective and, and a real look um, at um, what's going on, the the different crises that are you know affecting everyone uh, in a, in a significant way. So so this episode is going to focus mostly on the the emptiness of elections and um, I guess talking a little bit about the federal election to begin with. Um, and, and specifically how meaningless it was to have uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announce an election only to have the same results, but also to really have a lot of examples of how um, electing these people to represent us and to go into these positions of power um, and really do almost nothing but perform uh, action while still, you know, coming back to us year after year and, you know, demanding us to vote and demanding us to still participate in this system meaningfully, like it's actually going to, you know, affect our lives or like it's actually going to change anything meaningfully in our lives. Um, yeah, it really strikes the emptiness of everything. And I think that's something that was like really, really on display in uh, this last federal election. So like we talked a lot about, I guess, um, like bad news coverage and, and different things like that in the media. But I think a good example of like a really good news article or at least like a good um, piece of media that came out of this election was um, written by a former host of this show, actually, Hanan. 
And um, it was written in Passage, which is a left-wing uh, Canadian media publication. Uh, and the headline is, Trudeau can't claim to care about Muslims until he fights Bill 21. So Bill 21 is a bill in Quebec that essentially is trying to uh, prevent anyone from wearing any religious uh, symbols if they work in public office. So if they work for any level of government or any other public service in Quebec. So clearly targeting people who choose to wear the hijab, which is a core part of, you know, practicing the faith. If you're Muslim, you know, some Muslims choose not to wear it, but some do, obviously. So after four people were killed in Ontario um, due to Islamophobia and hate-based violence. Um, every federal leader came out and basically said, you know, we stand with Muslims, we understand the hate that they receive. Um, really strong words from every leader, you know, standing in solidarity. But then when it came to actually questioning their support for uh, Bill 21, it's been silence um, from, from basically everyone. So circling back, it's, it's the same thing when, when I talk about meaninglessness. Um, Hanan put it perfectly in this article where we're getting the performance, we're getting the rhetoric, we're getting all the words that, you know, sound really nice. We're getting the system, you know, asking us to vote and, you know, participate. But we're not, we're not getting the action. We're not getting um, what, you know, people need to actually, you know, make their lives livable. In, in the system that we, we have right now. Um, so I think, I think it's important, I think, to yeah, understand these situations that you know, kind of reveal what's going on um, underneath the system and show you know, what, how, how we can actually um, um, push things to maybe, maybe be different. Um, and I think one of the ways that this can happen um, is, is understanding that, you know, politicians shouldn't be given a blank slate. Um, like every time there's an election or every time, you know, some new cycle or some new issue happens, it seems like you're almost being reintroduced to like the same people that were in positions where they could have actually done something, but chose for whatever reason, you know, oftentimes because it's inconvenient for their own power or for, you know, their own interests um, to not do anything. So we have this past federal election, um, Randy Bossonneau, who's a liberal member of parliament elected into um, office after he lost his seat. But when he was in power, um, he was part of um, the questioning of Jody, Jody Wilson-Raybould, um, an indigenous MP who questioned Justin Trudeau um, and, and criticized his, his government for uh, abuse of power. So it's, it's interesting to see how the narrative is, is changed and how, like I said, these people, politicians get a blank slate and we conveniently forget about their roles in um, suppressing, in this case, suppressing indigenous issues or suppressing an indigenous person who is challenging the status quo and how things are just kind of kept rolling the same way. The liberal government that's in power right now, I think is a really good example of what we talk about when we say um, performative politics. And they came in with promises that I think co-opted a lot of the things that um, people really want to see change. So for example, electoral reform, I think things that were significant in indigenous rights issues like uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, um, 
among other things. So the government comes in promising all these different things. And of course, because it was all a performance to begin with, when someone like Jody Wilson-Raybould, for example, challenges the status quo, asks them to live up to their actual promises and what they actually stand for, um, Jody got shut down, um, got removed from her position in cabinet, um, got essentially ostracized and kicked out of her party, um, and you know is no longer in a position where she's actually taking advantage of um, being able to challenge the status quo in a meaningful way. Um, so I think this is kind of encapsulated perfectly, um, at least like the position of different um, groups in Canada in this chapter in this book, uh, Indigenous Rights by uh, an Edmonton author, or I guess a local uh, Alberta author, uh, Chelsea Val. So Indigenous Rights is a guide to First Nations, Métis and Inuit issues in Canada. Um, and Chelsea Val is a professor at the University of Alberta, um, as well as a public speaker, intellectual and uh, writer. And um, yeah, I'm just going to read this chapter. And I think, yeah, like I said, it encapsulates some of the ideas that um, I've been talking about earlier. For thousands of generations before contact, diversity of culture was a fact in what is now known as Canada. Despite today's official policy of multiculturalism, Canada was nonetheless collapsed cultural diversity into essentially four categories. White Anglophone settlers, white Francophone settlers, Aboriginal people, and newcomers, which basically is everyone else and is, in my opinion, the more honest term. None of these categories is neat or even particularly coherent when examined at all closely. For example, black families who have lived in Canada as long as any of their white counterparts are still often categorized as newcomers. And the existence of slavery as a reason for black presence in Canada is thoroughly denied. The incredible diversity of indigenous, or sorry, the incredible diversity of Aboriginal peoples is ignored in favor of a one-size-fits-all federal policy. The meaning of white has shifted and changed over time as European settlers expanded the category through official immigration policies, and so has meant very different things at different times in Canadian history. Despite the flaws inherent in these categories, there is still a strong sense that Aboriginal culture was supplanted by white settler culture, and newcomer everyone else cultures are welcomed only to the extent that they enrich the Canadian experience. In other words, as long as they are expressed via costumes, food, and music. Obviously, I'm simplifying what are very complex series of relationships and social phenomena, all to state what is fairly obvious. Canada has a set of relatively new cultural norms that are settler-based, and these cultural norms constitute the mainstream. In Canada, there are strong ideas about how to act, which do not always mirror Indigenous expectations. Cultural expression that can be commodified as a part of that mainstream, providing a very narrow outlet for Indigenous and everyone else, particularly Black and non-Black POC cultural expression. Cultural expression that can be purchased in the form of goods and services or entertainment are acceptable. Cultural expressions that cannot be so easily commodified can be seen as threatening, transgressive, or simply not Canadian. 
So yeah, if you could get the kind of message through through my reading, I think this chapter by Chelsea Val really really goes to um, this kind of difference where you know there's the acceptable and there's the, there's the unacceptable in Canada. You know, there's the um, acceptable liberal performance of you know saying that you stand with Black Lives and Indigenous people and for electoral reform and for you know balancing things in favor of you know workers. Um, and then there's the unacceptable, which is you know challenging the status quo, like Jody Wilson-Raybould, making sure that people are held accountable for their promises. Um, and um, this is kind of seen in the cultural um, view with uh, what Chelsea Val is writing, but I think it applies to um, a lot of the political action that's taking place in, in Canada today. And the Trudeau government is a really good segue for what we're going to talk about next, which is Edmonton's new mayor, Amarjeet Sohi who coincidentally was around when all of this was happening as a fairly powerful cabinet minister in Justin Trudeau's liberal government when he had a majority in parliament. So a majority in parliament, a powerful cabinet position, uh, really a seat at the table, you know, this metaphor that's always being thrown around, um, you know, everyone sitting at the table and figuring out our differences. Well, Mr. Sohi was at the table for a very long time at the highest level of government um, with influence and power um, to, you know, seemingly do what's right um, and not perform and, and really meet expectations for people who need it the most. Um, but... You know, we're in the current state that we are now with our country, the Liberal Party and its failures are, are well documented. Um, and it seems like so he has been able to fly above all that criticism, at least when it comes to his performance in the recent election. Um, and I think one thing that really strikes me, or at least that I think is worth thinking about, is um, this idea of... Uh, by POC, so Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, and how significant or insignificant that is with Amarjeet Sohi winning as a South Asian man, and um, how Alberta has two South Asian mayors as their representatives in the major cities, um, and how that's somehow a really meaningful thing. Um, and I think the term by POC especially um, flattens a lot of identities into this nice, neat category that I think is often used to um, make white people feel better about, you know, the fact that opportunities haven't been provided for these communities or that there are still many systemic barriers that are in place that really prevent it. Um, that really prevent indigenous people, that really prevent black people, and anyone who doesn't, again, fit within this performance or doesn't fit within this um, status quo, um, yeah, that they, those people don't really get. So with that being said, um, I still understand the, the urge and the, the need to feel very sentimental about these people who... Um, are, are kind of put on a pedestal as representatives of the community and of larger change. Um, I still remember pretty vividly um, when Barack Obama was elected in 2008. Um, and personally, my family was was overjoyed. You know, I, I remember, you know, this, 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 this excitement, you know, this, this almost like a cathartic release of, um, of joy and happiness, that the possibilities were endless for, for any black person to achieve the highest office, you know, seemingly in the world. 
Um, but when you really look back at what this president's legacy was and what was actually accomplished for people in a meaningful way, um, whether it comes to healthcare, whether it comes to uh, systemic barriers for racialized people, um, a lot of those things uh, lack short because I think ultimately it, it came down to a performance. And as long as things are put in these kind of categories of, you know, just because you serve this identity group, you're somehow going to bring about change or you're not going to be questioned or pushed as hard on how you're actually going to implement things. Um, yeah, we're going to see the same result and we're going to see the same disappointment and we're not going to see change within um, the status quo. So when it comes down to it, um, representation, whether it's under the banner or umbrella of BIPOC, whatever that means, um, really isn't enough. Um, because when it comes down to it, what we don't need is another person who is in a position to not do anything, but this time that that person somehow represents an unrepresented group. Fundamentally, it doesn't even matter who takes up these positions, as long as they actually do something that's meaningful to actually change the status quo. If you have someone that's of a different race or that comes from a different background or, you know, that represents a group that has been historically excluded, um, like I said, that is, you know, good for a lot of different reasons. But when it comes down to the reasons that should matter, um, it really, really, really does not matter. Uh, and fundamentally, it should matter if that person is pushing the status quo and bringing about systemic change, not necessarily what their background is and how that is used in an often sentimental way to obscure from the actual issues. So going back to Sohi and his platform, I think one thing that really strikes me that really shows some of how his platform can be seen as performative or in lockstep with what we've seen before from the liberal government um, is some of the rhetoric and some of the uh, policies around um, community safety, policing, um, and this new wave of hate crime in Edmonton. So when I talked about this rhetoric of bringing people around the table and having these, you know, deep, meaningful conversations that will somehow, you know, change big, serious problems um, that are often systemic and often tied to um, funding, money, power. Um, it doesn't seem like these things are being meaningfully addressed. It seems like we're kind of continuing the same cycle of performance. And I think if you look at a platform here that's publicly available, I think you can kind of see where I'm kind of coming from. So under Amarjeet Sohi's community, or sorry, under Amarjeet Sohi's Safe Communities for All, um, and under the applying the right resources to keep communities safe, um, I think you really get to see that while Amarjeet Sohi is invested in, you know, being there for black lives, talking about his own personal experience with racism um, in an attempt to connect with people, fundamentally, I think it's still a lot more of the same. And I don't think people should necessarily be surprised when we see things like an increased police budget or a similar police budget or support for things that aren't necessarily beneficial because this is the rhetoric in the platform. Quote, police are fundamental part of community safety, but we cannot keep diverting them away from their core mandate. 
Sometimes they are not the right service to be attending to an issue in the community. And then there's more about Edmonton and how it's come to uh, create this innovative community safety tool um, around help, this new community policing pilot. Um, but I think that initial sentence really, really st struck me as um, a real deep commitment to the status quo. Um, and, and, and really, I think when you hear stories, for example, like this indigenous teenager that had his head kicked in by a police officer um, and that caused serious brain damage, which he can't get a surgery for now because of COVID, um, so he has to wear a helmet. Um, learning that that police officer was a, um, a school resource officer, a program that's been you know vigorously defended by various city administrators, um, various Catholic school board and public school board administrators, defended using racist language and insinuation that refugees are somehow more dangerous than other people. Um, and then so to hear all that and, and to understand the, the history and the current context of policing in our city and how all of that can kind of be crumpled and crushed down into one sentence that, you know, police are a fundamental part of community safety. Um, yeah, it feels it feels very strange. It feels very strange to have that be, you know, the, the real rhetoric. And, and it only feels strange, I think, because um, I know that Mayor Sohi is still trying to appeal to to both sides and still trying to perform that, you know, these issues are serious and that, you know, fundamental change can somehow happen while still being, you know, deeply invested and, you know, supported, supportive of this system that is often incredibly violent and destructive to indigenous and black people's lives. Um, so performance while still upholding the status quo i think is the um kind of name of the game and um yeah i think i definitely got to see a lot of that when i had the chance to interview Amarjeet sohi um and it's it was one of those things where i think that i could have done a better job at asking more um more challenging questions or questions that probed and pushed him to um, answer more honestly or to, to show more of what he actually believed. I think in the interview, I, I gave him more space than was necessary to, I guess, say what he said in his platform, which is a lot of what I think is um, performance and trying to appeal to both sides of the issue. When, quite honestly, the reality is that there's mostly just an appeal to the status quo and to making sure that things stay the way they are um, and that if they do change, they can still stay relatively in control and in a way that doesn't shake things up too much. Um, so in the interview, I do wish and I do regret not being able to have um, pushed him a little bit further. But if anything, I think his answers really do speak for themselves and I think really do show a side of him that um, people should be wary of. And, um, you know, when, when, when Joe Biden was running for president in America, very, you know, different situation than what we're dealing with in Edmonton, but there was a very big rhetoric of, you know, let's push this person to the left or, you know, we can somehow, um, you know, influence their politics once they get elected. 
Because it seems that, you know, when politicians get elected, you know, they always say, okay, now we can get to work. Um, when oftentimes it's really the opposite that happens. Um, once they're elected, um, they, they've centered politics um, on the lives and the journeys of like getting elected. But oftentimes when they get into those positions, um, very little actually happens. That isn't outside of this like procedural script you know, of just like continuing the city administration, continuing the same policies, continuing the same bylaws, of course, making tweaks, of course, making changes, but again, only insofar as they continue this original plan that's always been running um, underneath there. So going back to the Joe Biden situation, um, I don't think that's going very well right now. I think things are still incredibly dysfunctional and things are still incredibly difficult because like I said, once you actually get into power, it's not about making right on all the promises that you made before or getting right to work like is being said. Um, it's usually about, like I said, continuing the status quo and um, yeah, pushing these people to the left or you know, claiming that what we need to do is get them elected and then we have some influence or power, I think is a very misguided thing. With that being said, I'm happy to share my conversation with Amrit Sohi now. And um, yeah, I think you can hear for yourself um, what kind of answers were given to these questions. To, to start off our conversation, um, if you want to first give your, your first and last name, but also for any listeners who may not be familiar with your background and your political career, maybe go into what inspired you to get into politics and what are some of the highlights of your time um, working federally and then also working within the city of Edmonton? Well, first of all, uh, Omar, thank you so much for having me. Uh, to your listeners, uh, my name is Amarjit Sohi. I am uh, the candidate running for uh, mayor of Edmonton. And prior to uh, 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 this, I served on city council from 2007 till 2015 and then 2015 to 2019 I was a member of parliament and during that time I also served in two major economic portfolios as infrastructure of infrastructure uh, sorry minister of infrastructure as well as the minister of natural resources uh, and so that's kind of my brief a brief introduction to your uh, uh, to your listeners, and I'm speaking to all of you from Treaty 6 uh, territory here in Edmonton. Uh, it is very important for me to acknowledge uh, the land of Indigenous peoples on which I have been able to come and live, on which I have been able to build my life and fam my family's life and give back to uh, make this community even a better place for all of us to, to live in. So uh, I guess building off of that point of giving back and, and building your community, through your time as a, as a federal minister and also on city council, did you feel like you were able to enact policies that directly impacted your constituents in your actual writing? Um, do you have any examples or things that you're really proud of that you know, really made a difference in, in the community? Yeah, you know, uh, I came to Canada as a young man. When I got here at the age of 18, uh, I couldn't speak English. Uh, I had no understanding of Canadian way of life. So I struggled a lot in my early days, faced a lot of racism and discrimination and bullying. I was lucky to have the support of my brother and my sister-in-law. 
uh, so I had that family support. Uh, so I was able to deal with those issues. But still, you know, I struggled a lot. And uh, this is a city that lifted me up uh, because it provides quality public services. I was able to rely on public transit to go to school uh, and go to work. I was able to uh, uh, access public libraries and rec centers and uh, and greenfield sports where I, you know, made friends where I could grab a book and read and learn a new language. So this is a city that has given me so much. And that was one of the reasons that I ran in 2004 was to use my experience, my lived experience to, uh, to talk about issues that cities uh, needs, to, needs to tackle and how critical public services are for, the, for building a stronger economy and building a stronger society but also the ability of individual to be successful. So that's the reason that I ran. And those are the ideas that I have worked on as a city councilor, from uh, building the LRT systems to uh, leading cities anti-racism, multiculturalism, and, uh, and immigration portfolios, uh, you know, helping uh, uh, add amenities into communities like Rex, uh, in, in Millwoods here building up new rec center and libraries. I'm pretty proud of uh, the work we were able to do together. So Edmonton is now seeing a continuous rise in steady news of hate crimes against black Muslim women. And in some cases, these attacks were very violent and uh, very brazen. In this moment, I think one thing that has been clear, at least for some community members, is how, I guess, inept, and inept is a strong word, but inept in this case might be useful, um, for how inept politicians have been in actually being able to treat this problem and address it in a manner that not only protects the community, but I think also makes it so that it's clear to the public that this isn't acceptable. So from your position, what do you think of these developments and how they've been handled by the current city administration? And from your perspective, what would you do um, if you became mayor? So racism is a very painful experience. Uh, I have experienced it. It is painful for the individual, but it's also painful for the community because there are ramifications when uh, a person of color of a particular uh, nationality or uh, 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 is attacked, uh, then community feels scared community feels attacked because the person is part of that community. And the reason that a person being attacked is because they look different from the rest of the, uh, uh, the, the, the society. So I am deeply concerned about uh, the rise in hate violence against uh, indigenous communities, against the black Edmontonians, against the Muslim women who wear hijab or other racialized communities. And that was one of the reasons that I ran in 2000 for ran for city council. Uh, as a matter of fact, ran for federal office as well because I wanted to share my stories and my experience and bring in policies that will help us deal with the racism and discrimination uh, in in our communities. So I hear those voices because I have been on the receiving end of racism. And we also need to recognize that certain communities are impacted more by racism than the other communities. Indigenous communities 
have been impacted by racism more. Black communities have been impacted by racism more. We have seen an increase in Islamophobia. We have seen an increase in anti-Semitism. Right? So we need to acknowledge those, uh, uh, those, those things and try to craft our policies to respond to those things. What we have announced as part of my campaign commitment that I will work with the communities to, uh, uh, to implement an action plan within first 100 days of taking office. I am committed that on the first council day, I will ask our city, our city council to, uh, to, uh, to direct the city administration to develop that action plan. That action plan would include strengthening our bylaws, making our public places like LRT stations, rec centers, uh, public parks uh, more safe and more accessible uh, for, for everyone that they can use without, without, without fear of being attacked. That action plan includes empowering communities to lead anti-racism work because who would understand racism better than those who experience it and the communities who experience it? So how we empower communities to take on, uh, on that action and implement that action. It also includes working better with the provincial and federal government to strengthen some of the legislation that has been weakened over the last number of years, particularly uh, online uh, crime, online hate that has been uh, uh, a huge, huge concern. So those are the things that I will do if I get elected because I'm, de I'm deeply committed to, uh, to inclusion and ensuring that everyone, all of us feel that Edmonton is our place that we are building Edmonton for all of us. Mm -hmm. So, on on uh, part of your plan, um, I think is 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 slightly similar to um, your the previous mayor of Edmonton, Don Iveson, who took into action um, after the George Floyd murder and protests to get city administration to, I guess, consider recommendations from a council, um, the anti the Community Safety and Wellbeing Task Force. Um, and so far, these recommendations, as far as I know, have been kind of put on hold, um, and not many of them have been able to be implemented after the task force has actually been, you know, recommending these things. Um, so in a, in a situation where, um, you know, some of your plans maybe don't get implemented or things go through city administration, and as these things do the system sometimes loses, um, I guess, the uh, core value that you're trying to, you know, put into place. Um, in, in, in a situation like that, what do you plan on doing? And do you think that there are ways to make sure that these, these things, these plans, these actions don't get lost in the system over time? You know, I, uh, I commend the work of the Wellness Task Force. Uh, they, uh, they came up with the uh, practical ways to improve the relationship between communities and authorities and uh, and put together some tangible practic practical solutions uh, uh, that city could implement from uh, training to reforming the police commission and having better representation uh, on police commission and hiring of uh, people from diverse backgrounds and number of other recommendations that they they came up with. 
I was disappointed uh, when the last report cons- to came came to council uh, from administration uh, on the implementation of those recommendations that administration's plan fell short on living to the expectations of the of the communities. What I would do if I get elected, uh, I understand the frustration. Uh, that is uh, being shown and demonstrated and uh, heard from the racialized communities because that frustration is real. Uh, so I have a very strong relationship with indigenous and the racialized communities. I want to leverage that relationship to bring them together uh, to talk about those issues. And I, what I would like to do is work, find a way to work better with communities to ensure their voices are heard and that we are putting together uh, and implementing policies that will allow us to continue to hear their voices and have their voices informed our policy. When it comes to the issue of homelessness in Edmonton, um, the previous city council and city administration, I think, have taken a housing first approach, at least um, in their attempts to get people to um, get into different programs and services. But we've obviously seen that that hasn't necessarily worked and there's been a lot of pitfalls in their approach. Um, for example, last summer with Camp Pekawewin and their organizers trying to negotiate with the city and ultimately ending with, you know, police clearing off the camp and, you know, encampments like that, you know, still being illegal and people still necessarily not having the supports and the resources that they need. Um, and one of your main, I guess, uh, competitors in this race, um, Mike Nickel, is looking to, um, for example, hire 18 police officers in Chinatown to um, essentially help police and, you know, control the homeless population. Um, so from your perspective, um, what is your approach to, um, I guess, helping homeless people in Edmonton and, um, I guess, yeah, making sure that the community feels like they're, they're also safe? Yeah. I firmly believe that uh, an ambitious city like ours uh, can end homelessness. And we have done a good work of housing thousands of Edmontonians uh, who were homeless are no longer homeless because of the housing first approach and the work that is being done in the community. What we need is a stronger partnership with federal government and the provincial government. Edmonton cannot tackle this issue and this challenge alone. And the homelessness is directly uh, connected to uh, uh, trauma, is directly connected to mental health, is directly connected to to addiction. So we need to have a holistic approach of uh, having a supportive uh, appropriate housing and then wrapped around services for people to heal. So the model works. What we need is a stronger partnership with the federal government and the provincial government. What I would like to do if I get elected is actually build a broader coalition of partners uh, to engage with the provincial government, engage as a community, not just as city hall engaging with the uh, provincial government and the federal government, but community. Uh, you no know, faith leaders, business leaders, community leagues, uh, cultural organizations, uh, uh, indigenous Edmontonians and leadership from indigenous Edmontonians coming together, facilitated by mayor's office, and developing a coordinated approach to engage with province 
and making a strong case why investing in people should matter to them. If this provincial government is serious about growing the economy and creating opportunities for all of us, then we need to work with them and they need to work with us. So I would like to build a stronger advocacy, a coalition of partners to convince this province that investing in Edmonton should matter to them. Because if Edmonton is able to thrive, then Alberta will thrive. So certain people who've engaged in city politics or even provincial or federal politics have tried to push these institutions and systems to adapt and change and take on a different form than they currently have. I think especially when it comes to progressive politics, people are certainly tired because I don't think that they see change that they want to see, at least not happening fast enough. Um, So for people who are tired and haven't seen results um, and still want systemic change, um, do you think that it's even possible to see our systems, at least our political systems, radically change within our lifetimes? Um, Do you think that's even necessary to create the kind of world that we want to create? My vision for Edmonton is that this is a place where everyone should be able to thrive. I was able to thrive here and I came with nothing. And this community supported me to thrive. And that's exactly what we need to do for everyone. So we can build a city of opportunities. We can build a city uh, that we all feel that this is our place, that we belong here, that Edmonton is us, that Edmonton is for all of us. In order to do that, we need to build people's capacity to do that. And I believe that uh, I have the right skill set to pull people together, that collaborative approach to governance, uh, that bridge building approach to governance, where we look at our problems in a collective way, in in a way that we find solutions by working together. And I believe uh, in people, and I believe in people's capacity uh, to uh, uh, to, uh, to to live up to their fullest potential. What we need to do is create conditions to unlock that. And I believe that we can do that together. And if we are able to, uh, uh, you know, find ways to uh, work better with our regional partners, work better with the provincial and federal governments, and think about focusing on people and not on which orders of government and which uh, your responsibilities absolutely those are necessary to understand, but at the end of the day, people want results and they want results from all of their governments. And the more we can work together, I believe that that will help us transform some of the institutions that are so necessary for us to be, uh, us, us to be transforming in order to deliver on the expectations of all Edmontonians. So yeah, I, I think one of my biggest takeaways from that interview was um, how difficult it was to contend with some of the proposed policies to actually combat um, hate crimes, um, to ensure community safety, um, especially from the perspective that a lot of the policies were very uncritical, the fact that a lot of violence and um lack of community safety is being perpetuated by police in our city. Um, And there's no real plan or real um, acknowledgement of that problem. Um, And I think a lot of it is also, um, I guess, passing the burden off to to other groups to to solve this problem. You know, whether it's the federal government or the provincial government to legislate on hate crimes, 
um, and quite honestly do things that they've clearly shown aren't necessarily priorities or might again fit within this whole performance first and do nothing second kind of attitude. Um, but also other things like making place public spaces and places more accessible and safe, which honestly is something that the city has already invested so much in. So I don't necessarily see how that can be another place to do. Um, so sorry, to do more um, work to actually combat racism and um, discrimination in the community. And um, a lot of the rhetoric, I think, was also around this idea of empowering communities to, you know, give people a voice or, you know, put people um, at the table um, and, and that, that that will somehow, you know, bring about um, clear change. Um, but like I said before, um, if the if the goal and if the intention uh, deep down is, is simply to perform or is to, um, if I can use very charged language, to pander, um, then ultimately we're not really going to see the results that we we want, um, and and ultimately institutions and groups like the police, for example, will be protected by either not even being mentioned, or if they are mentioned, like I said in the platform, um, they are mentioned in, in a very positive, um, very uh, uh, you know, very light way um, that completely uh, I think ignores the role that they play in perpetuating a lot of these problems. Um, so yeah, with that being said, I'm I'm really excited and really happy to be to be back for for another season of the podcast. Um, you can expect a few changes on our Patreon when it comes to how we divide the tiers. We're gonna have a, a very low entry level tier. Um, we're excited about also having uh, different content there. So we we are often yeah critical of the media. So we're kind of putting together a little uh, what we call a cringe corner for the Patreon uh, supporters, where we record an episode kind of criticizing uh, an article or a piece of content in, in mainstream Canadian media. So our first article is actually directly related to Amarjeet Sohi, um, and uh, it's an article in the Globe and Mail that touches on um, this, you know, so-called, uh, you know, good, good, good use of, of racial politics in um these uh, South Asian mayors winning uh, in Alberta. So if you want to hear a little bit more about that, you can head over to the Patreon. Um, and yeah, very, very excited to be back, like I said, um, and, and hope you can stick around for the rest of the season for a little bit more conversational style podcasting um, and, and touching on some topics that we touched on last season, um, like a little bit more on performative politics, um, we're going to touch on the Catholic school board, um, obviously talk about policing again, um, talk about politics as well, um, and, and, and many other things I think that, that impact people in, in our community in Edmonton. So yeah, with that being said, thanks for listening to today's episode. And um, yeah, I hope to, to talk to you soon and, and uh, be on a, a, on a really good journey together for um, this second season of the podcast.